Welcome to Little Impolite Podcast. I'm your host, Devo, and excited to have this show today. We have a special guest on. When I say special, I really actually mean special. It is Nick the Trick Egan. And if you don't know Nick, I've had him on in the past. Was it about a year ago I think we had you on, right? Probably, yeah. And Nick is the author of Shift, The Art of Transforming Limitations, which is a brilliant book. And I think he's going to give some away on the show today. Um, just to show that I actually do read books that people give me, I'd like to just, as proof, you see all the bookmarks that I have in your book here um, and lines out everywhere. Anyhow, Nick is going to talk to us a little bit about life and we're going to learn about his journey as a monk and he lived in the Himalayas and he's now a business coach. I want to learn more about the type of clients that he's bringing on, but I really want to know a little bit about some of the things that you're doing to help these clients. So talk a little bit about your superpowers and you know, what, what is, in, in, in your words, how are you transforming the people that you're affecting? So mm-hmm. I'd like to talk a little bit about that. So welcome to the show, my man. Awesome. Thank you. Always good to see you. Likewise. So in the first show I had you on, it was really sort of clinical because I was still trying to get my feet wet in the podcasting world. And since then, we've picked up five recurring live guests that follow us or um, followers that follow us every show. So now kind of nice. a big deal. You're kind of like a celebrity now. Huge. Yeah, so um, there will be some live people uh, that join us, and from time to time, they'll ask us questions, so I appreciate that. Let's jump right into it. How long ago did you write this book? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. Three or four, well, write it. I wrote it probably five years ago, and then it got published, I think, a year and a half after, a year and a half later, so maybe three and a half years. What's the, what was the impetus for writing a book? Was this a, a profit seeking mechanism or you just have a lot in your head and you want to get out on paper this came out in 2018 it says yeah that sounds about right um that's a good question i mean i think most people that write books unless you have a lot of a serious market plan behind it marketing plan it's not really a profit motivation um it is kind of a contribution to something and wanting people to understand something from a different perspective so when i started off writing the book i wanted to write a book coming from Buddhist theory, but not for Buddhists and not even really using too much Buddhism. So it was kind of like a Dharma book without some elements of what I would consider like the traditional Dharma. So it's a lot about mind training. And I thought that it could be helpful to people. So what's your background? How did you become who you are? You are, um, you've lived a pretty, you've lived a pretty non-traditional life from what I understand. You've bounced around the world and lived in different sectors of the world. You've done some amazing things. How, how did you get to where you are now? You grew up in California. Is that right? Originally? I grew up in California. Yeah, I grew up in California. And from a young age, I was always really drawn to spirituality. Um, what, what does that mean, young age? Like we're talking fives, two? Are you like yeah. a Padawan? Like yeah, really be- so five, five, right around five there. So I, yeah, I would wake up and I would you know, check out. At that time, when you woke up really early, there would be like gospel stuff on on TV. So I would do a lot. I would watch a lot of that. I would have a lot of questions. Um, I would kind of spend a lot of time by myself. So I was drawn to that sort of spiritual experience. Um, I even had a few like pretty spiritual experiences early on when I was young, like between, I'd say five to 10. And then I was always interested in meditation, always interested in martial arts. So the minute that I could start training those things seriously. So by the time I was 16, um, I started training pretty seriously with a couple different teachers in, in meditation. So I've known you for a couple of years. You've always been sort of this elusive enigma around things. What does that mean 
uh, spiritual experiences five what, what what does one's spiritual experience look like at five six seven years old when i'm watching smurfs on a saturday morning what are you doing yeah. at five years old <laughs> well smurfs is good smurfs could be considered a spiritual experience in and of <laughs> itself for sure gargamel he's no joke um that was my five-year-old tradition i'd wake up at saturday morning 7 a.m 6 a.m before my parents were awake my mother would always sneak me a can of chef boyardee raviolis i'd open up that big bad boy family pack and i'd sit there and eat raviolis out of the can while i was watching smurfs well that sounds awesome luxurious right there um yeah when i when i talk about spiritual experiences i mean i do maybe seem elusive i was on another podcast and she said something similar like you don't really want to claim I try not to claim any status because um, I don't have really any status in a lot of ways. Um, and so spiritual experiences, I'm cautious about describing them in too much detail because it can kind of give you an air of mysticism. And I, I have an allergic reaction to people that take themselves too seriously. So, but going <laughs> into what, I, what I'm talking about, spiritual experiences, I mean, kind of along the lines of like what would be considered a samadhi, meaning like an absorption, an absorbed state. And in samadhi, there's different kinds. So when you when you meditate for a, a while, a long time, you start to have these experiences that people think of and they write about them in a way that's kind of valorized, but actually they're quite common. Um, it just it's not super common to have them as a kid without kind of a meditative experience. Um, so things like it would be an exa an example would be sometimes when you're meditating or if one that I would have as a kid pretty common. It would be like the entire room, everything would go dark all of a sudden and kind of this narrowing. And then at that narrowing, then there's like an experience of a kind of light or energy. And so you would lose all sense of like time and space and yourself, but you would sort of be absorbed in that, in that state. If that makes so sense. you're doing this sort of stuff at five years old meditating? No, I would have, I wasn't, I didn't know how to meditate at that time, but I would have experiences that in retrospect, we're kind of spiritual and sort of out of the realm of, I think, what most people were having. You're like a NorCal Jesus. <laughs> I don't, I'm the uh, hardly man, hardly. I was reading yeah. a story recently on the true history of Jesus, and you yeah. know, who knows what it is, but you know, he was he he left his family, I think, at ten years old. Yeah. And somehow got into a caravan, and, and I'm I'm not quoting this as fact, but this is the story, and moved to India. At 10 years old yeah so that's an interesting question there's some there well first i mean jesus and the essenes and all of that so there was he was definitely involved well definitely i think he was probably involved in like mystical judaism at the time so would be considered like a mystical school of judaism and some there's some evidence maybe that he went to india supposedly there's some evidence in like tibetan scrolls in ladakh so in northern india near kashmir and there is, um, I will say this, I have seen, there's a tomb in India, in northern India, so in Kashmir, that they attribute to Jesus. They believe Jesus was is there. So they believe that, that, at least many of the people there, they believe that after he rose from the dead, he then taught and taught and taught and then left and went to, to India and then later died there in an old age. There's interesting traditions about Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, and he also, uh, according to Billy Carson, which is, you, know, you're, you and I are both familiar with him, he also yeah. lived uh, for a considerable amount of time in Egypt and did some of the mystery schooling over there in Egypt sure. as well. So, yeah. all right, so back to you. So NorCal Jesus, back to you. So um, all joking aside, I, in every conversation I've ever had with you, and I've had some exhaustive experience with you now, you seem to have a broad breadth of knowledge around a variety of different topics, um, modern-day topics as well as historical, as well as transcendental and mystical and spiritual 
and and this you know that's sort of a that's sort of a misnomer in people our age growing up in the time that we grew up and that seems to be more self-evident now it's like everybody's suddenly a yogi and everyone's suddenly a spiritual woke and i'd like to talk a little bit about that what that means in today's modern age because like you go on instagram and every five seconds there's somebody proclaiming themselves to be like the next this or the next that and it's just like where does it end um your journey into that space this spirituality when did you start realizing that these visions or these experiences that you were having were something more than just sort of odd occurrences to you because the seven-year-old mind doesn't really have the relatability or context to say hey i know what that is no i didn't have context for it until after i started meditating pretty serious pretty frequently um and who who got you into meditation sorry i'm bouncing so like who taught me meditation yeah like how did you get into that in what age i was just always drawn to it like anything that was even slightly about meditation or prayer or spirituality or the mystical or ghosts or crystals or whatever i mean I, I would try to devour that information either at the library or at a bookstore or talk to people um i didn't have that much access to people that were involved in that like it's not like now where you can just find whatever you want on the internet mm-hmm. right like mm-hmm. it was really challenging and then from the time i was 16 i started really studying seriously a couple of different schools of meditation. And then from there, I realized like what I was experiencing before. So I was able to experience it in meditation too. And I was like, oh, talking to some of my teachers, like what's this experience? And then it became more clear. But from a young age, I was always drawn to that side of things. What's your educational background? My undergrad is, a well, I went to a Catholic high school, uh, which was interesting and fun. And then my undergrad is in psychology. And then I went to master's and PhD in world religions first, and then changed it over to Buddhist studies. And then I studied in a monastery for a long time. A close friend of mine was, was giving me shit recently because I have a undergrad in psychology as well. And they were telling me that that was just a cop-out degree. I don't know. It doesn't feel like it. I was like, man, I studied really do- diligently with psychology. I, I actually dove into it. It was something I'm fascinated by. Yeah. What was his degree in? Uh, political science. I was like, you're no better. Everyone does, <laughs> yeah, polit- Everyone does political <laughs> science, you fool. This <laughs> is communication. Like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually really enjoyed it. I, I did not, I've not enjoyed school most of my life, but I really did enjoy the whole idea of psychology. And um, yeah. So there's then you some, went in. There's some really interesting, like in psychology, it's interesting. People ask me like, why didn't you go on to get your, your become a therapist? And I was really enamored with like gestalt psychology. I felt like he was kind of doing some shamanistic things, some really cool direct things. And then other kinds of like transpersonal, what we considered like more woo or spiritual psychology um, coming from the humanistic tradition. So I think there's a great, there's a lot of cool stuff in psychology. And now I do coaching, which I think is like, well, it is, it's coming out of the positive psychology movement um, in the late nineties. So you, uh, you get out of college and then what's your journey next? Where do you go next? Oh, I feel like I never, I mean, with a PhD, you never really get out of college, right? It just like slowly slows down. Um, so after, so getting my master's and PhD and then doing field work in Asia. So then I, for a long time, would lead tours through Asia. So I wasn't living there full time after, well, I was, I lived in Nepal for a period of like nine months, but I've been traveling back and forth there for prolonged trips, like 30 day trips, um, or sometimes even longer before that. And so I led people throughout the Himalayan region. So anywhere that was like touched by Tibetan tradition, I was basically leading tours. And then after that, yeah, 
Are these focused tours or with with a with an end game in mind, or are these just tourists that are trying to do tourist things? No, it was through. I consider them like personal development tours, but they're they're more people that I would consider like Buddhist sympathizers. So people that maybe weren't Buddhist themselves or hadn't really studied anything formally, but maybe they had done a bunch of yoga. They wanted to learn more about Tibetan stuff, so they they were interested enough to pay somebody like me to take them on the tour. And and your job was just simply to navigate, or was there lectures oh, no. involved? Or yeah, lectures. So there's lectures daily, daily scheduled lectures. But then when you're when you're going through parts of Asia, especially like Nepal and Tibet, um, it can be quite overwhelming when you go into a temple and there's stuff everywhere. There's iconography everywhere. So I started off actually talking mainly about iconography and art, and then it kind of morphed from there. And people really wanted to know not just about it, but like do some practices and things like that, and go to maybe some hidden areas. And how many years did you spend over there doing this? Oh, a lot. I mean, I did it off and on for like a good 10, 11 years. Oh, wow. And you've studied in Buddhism with monks in these? Yeah, in so these I, I was never a monk, like you said in the beginning. Um, a monk takes a vow. So there are different levels of monks. So a monk will take vows. And I've never taken a vow of celibacy or anything like that. Um, although there are Buddhist vows, but you're, you're being considered a monk. Um, but I did. I studied in in Rangju Geshe, which is like a monastery in, in Nepal. And how much of an impact do you think doing that has had on your life and, and where you are today? How, how much of that underscores who you are right now? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, probably a lot. I mean, I try, to, I try to adhere to a lot of the ways of thinking and certainly the practices as much as I can do. And so it's interesting, like how much does something, how much does practice like influence who you are Versus like who you are propel you toward a practice. Um, I don't know that I have the answer. Well, let me rephrase the question. So how much of what you learned or picked up contextually or, and discipline wise in terms of your daily habits and your perspective on the world and just how you approach everything that you do, how much does that play a role in your personal life as a father, as a business owner, as a coach for other people? How much of those sort of spiritual teachings, if you will, is that a good way to classify them, sure. play a part yeah. in the ethos of who Nick Egan is today with what you're doing? Yeah, I, I mean, it's the foundation for everything, for sure. I mean, Buddhism is a little bit interesting, too, because at least the way that I came up studying it, it you really do understand like the philosophical underpinnings, at least on the Tibetan side of things. And so you can go deep, deep, deep into philosophical understanding and discussion before even getting to anything that I would consider like spiritual the way most people think of it in terms of moving energy, meditation, prayer, all of that kind of devotion, that type of stuff, um, which in the West, I think it's categorized as spirituality versus like philosophy. So when you think, think about like, yeah, go ahead. I think a lot of time, um, at least in my exposure to Buddhism and, and this sort of logic, and especially in Eastern philosophies is that it seems re rather circuitous and it never actually gets to a point, but that's sort of the point is that there is no end and there is no beginning. Do you think that that's one of the reasons why for so many years here in Western ideology with Christianity and religion and whatnot, that that sort of thinking has been rejected and why is it suddenly having a resurgence or, or it seems to be taking grasp of our corner of the world now? Why would you think, why do you think that is? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I don't know. There's some interesting like prophecies about Buddhism in particular and talking about like that it will spread, it spreads to the West and all of that. Like a lot of people have had experiences of that. Um, so I'm not sure 
maybe why. I actually don't know. I wouldn't say it's necessarily circular in that way and that there's no endpoint, right? I mean, there is a, there's a salvific endpoint, what they call in, world, in religious studies, like soteriological endpoint, um, meaning like there is, so like with Western philosophy, not, not connected to religion, there's just like, what do you get if you do more philosophy? You just get some kind of understanding, right? But there's no endpoint. But within Asian philosophy, specifically Buddhism, but also Hinduism and Taoism and Jainism, there is. Well, what, was the, what was the third one? Sorry, Jainism, Jain, J A I N. It's just a lesser known Indic tradition. Um, there is a kind of enlightenment, right? There is, like, we will say, there is a Nirvana. There is a Satori. There is a oneness with the Tao. And so there is like that endpoint in that way. Now there is a beginninglessness of experience, meaning like there's an inexhaustible experience. But that doesn't mean that there's no um, going beyond that. So in in the practice of your your business and and how you're coaching clients, you are a part therapist. I have experience with that. But how much of what you learned in that context is now delivered to the clients in in, in which you coach? Yeah, that's a good, good question. Um, fundamentally, if we're thinking about coaching, if I were to describe coaching, the fundamental mechanism of coaching is just recognizing a pattern, some kind of pattern of belief and behavior and what that pattern then creates. So every, every pattern that we have of belief and behavior creates some kind of outcome. Very often, we don't necessarily see all the elements of the outcome or don't want all the elements of the outcome. But at the very beginning, we don't even see it as a, a pattern. It's just like a thing that we do or a thing that we believe. And we don't even think of it as a thing we believe. It's just like reality, right? So good coaching is coming to those patterns and pointing at them and saying, hey, those are actually patterns. And if they're patterns, we can choose to adopt them, choose to disrupt them, choose to change them, or choose to simply keep them as they are, but understand still that they're patterns and that they'll create like these other things. And so that, I think, fundamentally from a philosophical perspective, is really at the heart of Buddhism, right? So they talk about it in different terms, like karmic formations and habits of mind and all of this stuff. Um, but at the fundamental level, it's like being able to understand patterns and then work with them in some way. Ultimately, you want to go beyond all, all patterns. And that's what I would consider like the highest level of spirituality, but which is something that I don't typically teach. Can you dive into that a little bit more beyond patterns? Yeah, beyond patterns. So like... Use me as an example. So, <clears throat> excuse me, let's say you, let's say Devo, you have a pattern of wanting to go after a certain thing and not even really knowing why you want to go after that certain thing, but you want to go after that certain thing. And then in order to do that, you do certain kinds of work. You set yourself up for certain kinds of effort in order to do that. And you're sort of compelled to do that, right? But there's another way to, you could, one, you could keep that pattern. Two, you could say, yeah, you know, I don't, do I even really want that thing? Is that thing even worth pursuing? Or the other version is like, hey, yeah, I do want that thing. Is there another way that I can pursue that thing? Like, what's a more effective way? So it's all working within the realm of patterns, right? A way to go beyond patterns is like, let's just sit, meditate, and allow your deep desire for that thing to bubble to the surface, but like, let it dissolve in and of itself. Like, it's sort of like a snake untying itself from being tied into a knot. And when that untying happens, there's a kind of clarity that, that rests behind it. So what we would talk about in Buddhism as like the nature of mind. Taoism, they might say it's like a little bit different. Um, so that nature of the mind is beyond all patterns. It's not really working on like self-improvement or patterns in any way. It's actually just allowing it to self-liberate. 
so when you say allowing it, so for me to uncoil my snake, is, is there a specific habits that I would want to employ? Is, is that, how, how do I allow that to sort of just unfurl on its own? Yeah, that is, you have to. Because that goes contradictory to everything that we're taught as Westerners. As Westerners, we're taught to compete, to be the best we can, to go after everything, no pain, no gain. So to sit in an idle capacity and unfurl on its own in order to achieve something of greater magnitude seems completely counterintuitive to what we've ever been taught. Yeah, not not everything. I would. There's a couple of exceptions to that, I would say, in the West. But how you do it is the most direct way is just to rest, like literally to sit and to rest. What, what we talk about as resting in the nature of mind, like allowing your mind to be thought free, but not blacked out state, right? If you allow your, your mind to be thought free, which is not easy and not many people can even do that. It's hard to even fathom, like, what does that mean unless you've actually experienced it? Then it, there's more and more instances of, instances of that. And then your mind kind of naturally self-liberates. That's the most direct way. There are other ways too. Um, so, so that but, whole idea of, sorry, go ahead. No, but I want to go back to in the West, like there are many instances of a version of this, a soft version of this. So like one instance would be like being in the zone, right? So being in the zone, being like all of that, that's kind of getting toward that. So that's a, it's a little bit different, right? Because you're not really letting go of thoughts, but in the moment, you're really totally focused and absorbed on what's right in front of you. So a state of flow. A state of flow. That would be an example. Another in the West. Well, can I, I'm sorry. Can I pause yeah, you there? Yeah. So, but when I'm in a state of flow, I'm actively doing something typically. Like, for example, I play on a men's soccer team. Yeah. And, and for me, being out on the soccer field on a Sunday morning like I was yesterday, 60, 68 degrees, just the most brilliant weather, running around, playing the most brilliant sport in the world, that's a state of flow for me. I, I literally go into a transcendental state for 90 minutes. Like, there's nothing else that exists for me. But I'm actively doing something. So that whole idea of being thought-free, I guess I'm not thinking about anything, technically speaking, but I'm still doing something out on the field. I'm yeah. just trying to understand the distinction between doing and not doing. Yeah. So imagine that flow state, which is not exactly there. It's re it's close. It's really close to being there. But imagine just sitting down on your cushion and creating a flow state, like right in the moment, right now. And doing like nothing else. Only being in the flow state. So right now, what you're relying on is the object of awareness. So you're relying on soccer. You're relying mm -hmm. on all of that to get into the flow state. And so what meditation teaches you is to create that flow state without relying on mental objects. Or physical objects and so that's so but then that's only level that's like here right then you have to kind of let go of that flow state and there's even there's deeper levels of clarity so in as it pertains to the state and practice of meditation are there specific techniques that that you teach people to jump into that flow state by doing nothing because one of the things that i struggle with the most is this monkey mind i'll sit down and I have all good intentions to meditate and I'll put on headphones to, to some binaural beats or listen to a guided meditation. And often I just get caught up in the, I get, I can't get out of my own way. There's just yeah. this constant barrage of things that need to be done, thoughts I want to work on. And then I just give up and I walk away. Is, yeah. is there, is there a, a, a grouping of techniques or habits that you could teach us as meditators to achieve that flow state by doing nothing and just sitting down in this current time? Yeah, there are literally hundreds of different kinds of techniques, everything from like energy practices to breath work to visualizations to mantra um, to just simply being direct. And it's important, I think, this is why you work with a good teacher, right? It's not necessarily just a one size fits all. Like I have some people, I know people that can do it kind of directly without any kind of training at all. And I've just talked to them about it. And we do little practices here and there, it's very brief, but they can get like a taste of it. 
And I, I know other people that their mind is too active or too habituated to do that kind of thing. So they, ha they need a much more forceful method. And so this is why we have so many different methods. So if, if you had to train me and you had 24 hours to teach me the art of meditation, where would you begin and what would be that, what would that exercise look like? Oh man, that's a hard one. Um, how, how can you simplify that down to the most binary terms so that a plebeian like me could pick that up and have some modicum of success after 24 hours of your teachings? Yeah, there's an interesting, um, there's a concept, are you familiar with Milarepa? Maybe not. He's a very, very, you are, yeah, so it's a very yeah. famous Tibetan and what his, his path was. So he had done some negative things and he had a lot of layers of like habituation within his mind. So karmic tendencies within his mind. So what his teacher did, he basically like told him to move giant boulders and build this huge tower. I've seen the tower, it still exists in Tibet. And then he was like, nope, tear that down and move it to here. So he just pushed him to the point of exhaustion. And then at that moment, he kind of like points out that, oh yeah, this is, you're like ready. And so there's a lot of stories of that, like pushing yourself to the point of exhaustion. And then right in between your thoughts, you can get a, a taste of it. So if I really only had 24 hours, I might try to do something more extreme with you. Like, let's go climb a mountain and then see if we can just like get a little taste of it in the beginning. But that sounds eerily similar to me using soccer and being outdoors as the vehicle to get to that space. So if I, yeah. if I had nothing to do, how would that, how would that work? What do you mean nothing to do? So you said the, the ideally the most beneficial way is just to be able to find that flow state by just plopping down in my sofa right now and just engaging in nothingness. Yeah, not nothingness, but yeah, letting thoughts go freely. But in order for me to get nothingness and thoughts be free, I would have to work through exhaustion to get to that point. So, so that's still doing something. Yeah, it's doing something up until the point of letting go. So what you need is you need a real clear pointing out of like what that actually that moment is. And then once you understand what that moment is, it's sort of like tasting chocolate that you've never tasted before. Then once you taste chocolate, excuse me, you only need to taste it once. And then I will go say like, okay, Jeeva, now go find more chocolate. But before you've tasted it, it's just kind of like talking around it, right? Or salt or something. Like, how can I describe salt to somebody that's never tasted it? But if I just get you to a point of like, taste a little bit of salt, I can always bring you back to that point. Or you can always bring your mind back to that point. Hmm. So there's any method that you use is by definition going to have action in it, right? It may not be soccer. It may not be mountain climbing. It's going to be maybe breathing. It may be visualization. But you do the breathing and visualization and soccer and energy and all that in order to deeply let go. And then once you, you let, get to a certain point. And then once you let go of that point, yeah, once you let go of those karmic tendencies, you can always kind of access it. Once you see what it is, you can always be like, oh, yeah, I know what salt tastes like. And now it's just a matter of like training. Hmm. Let's go back to the Himalayas. So you're doing work in Nepal. You've done that for 10 years. When did you come back to the States? I never really, I mean, I was always going back and forth, uh -huh. right? So I was always just going back and forth um, and lived in Northern California. And I would do, so my family has multifamily real estate. And so I would work doing some elements of that too. So there's like a lot of management kind of management type of business that goes along with that. Um, and then from that point, I had a chance encounter with somebody who was a coach and I was really impressed. And she, she was going through a training program that I later went through. And I thought that is, that is the kind of, methodology that I was looking for in terms of um, like a therapeutic practice. And it felt very like masterful. I mean, she was a new coach, right? But it felt very much like you're engaging with a person, you're trusting in their inherent creativity, their inherent wholeness. 
And then if you stay with them long enough, there's like an opening that will be created and then you can kind of shift things. So you went through that program and that's how you got launched into the career the as a business coach? Yeah. Yeah. Well, executive and business coach. So because of my background, it was, I mean, in coaching, there's different kinds, right? So there's people that are life coach, people that are, um, that do business coaching for like small businesses. There are people that do executive coaching. So I, because of my background, I kind of fell into the executive leadership business side, which it's all the same. I mean, coaching is coaching, right? It's all kind of the same. And I always tell people like you coach the whole person. So whatever, whatever comes up, you know, I mean, you can attest to this, whether it's like uh, health or relationship or whatever, you know, there's always some element of that. What, tell me if, if you may, what that means to you as a coach. If I have no context for it and you're trying to describe what your method is and, and how you believe the relationship between a client and a coach should unfold, what does that look like to you? At the most profound level, I mean, at the very basic level, it's going to be me giving you some tools, right? Me giving you some practices, patterns, all of that. But at a really, really profound level, it's I think of it as the coach is the mirror that reveals your own possibilities. So the coach is the mirror and I'm you have to sit with that kind of awareness. And maybe that is where a level of spirituality does come in. You have to be able to really stay with that person, really be focused no matter what, like not get, not get drawn off into their emotions and not get drawn off into your emotions, your story, your agenda, any of that. You have to stay there and then be patient and willing and trust. Have, have um, the kind of confidence in the person that you're with that they do actually know the answers of the direction. And so then some possibility opens up and you just, all it takes is like a little bit of a uh, pointing out and then things can kind of shift. So that takes a, an incredible amount of discipline, non-ego, unbiased, and emotionally heartfelt kindness, I would imagine, to work with people in that capacity. Because I would suspect that you're being exposed to everyone's demons, their struggles, their inhibitions, or lack thereof, and all those different pieces. And your job is to, if you're a reflection of all of that, your job is to not absorb that. Yeah. but be a sounding board of reason. Yeah, it it does take elements of that, but I think of it more like Carl Rogers, famous human, humanistic um, psychologist. He talked about like kind regard, and that's, I think, what it is. It's like kind of like kind regard and trust in knowing that it is all within you and that you're going to get there. Like you are inherently whole. So in that way, it's not different from Buddhism, right? I trust that you are you are innately enlightened. You have everything that you need. It's just it's kind of covered up just like a cup, right? So if I take this mug and I get it and it's covered up with dirt, I still know that the cup is in there, even if I can't see the cup. So I have trust that the cup is there and then I wipe away the dirt. Hmm. What's the difference between that and a therapist? Therapists tend to, well, the traditional sort of definition is whether whatever you do, whatever kind of coaching you're doing, you're always looking at the present and the future. So like present patterns of behavior and belief and then looking at the, the future. We don't really get into like what happens? Was it your mom? You know, was it your, was it a childhood trauma that happened? So we're not really interested in healing going back in time. That's the most simple, but there is, I mean, I was just talking to a good client of mine and she was asking similar questions. So I went through and looked at the international coaching federation. They have a list of capacities and dealing with complex emotions, strong emotions, being able to stay with emotions. It's, it's similar kinds of things with therapy. And this is all within, I mean, coaching too, anybody can say that they're a coach, right? I've, I'm certified as a coach. I'm with you training as a coach, but you just say like, I'm a coach, just the same way you can say you're a consultant. Mm -hmm. So it has a broad range. Um, 
and what counts as coaching can be different things. But this kind of coaching, like the actual certified coaching, it did come out. It is a psychological tool that, like I said, came out of positive psychology in the 90s. That's a good point because there are every size, shape, and color of coaches now. It seems like every time I go on the internet or anytime I'm on Instagram, I'm getting hit with a promotion for a new coaching course that's coming yeah. out. And yeah. What, what's your take on all of this? And why is there such a massive proliferation of that right now? All of a sudden, it seems. I think that people, I think people are, people, number one, they recognize the value of somebody that can teach you how to do something or somebody that can move you from one state to another. And they realize that that's a much faster path to accomplish whatever it is. Right. And then at the same time, I think that our traditional uh, institutions are not good at doing that whether that's school or even like to some degree, like traditional kind of religious type settings, it's not really, there aren't very many good examples of people or institutions that can pull you along in that way. So then you get a proliferation of people that can. Do you think that there are certain <clears throat> intrinsic qualities of yourself that you have had to shed in order to become a coach so that you can be this reflection for people? Do you have to set people, part of you aside when you step into this box for the hour long session with each of your clients? I mean, that's not how it, it doesn't feel like that to me. It feels more like I have to become more who I really am to be with clients. Well, it seems to me from my perspective, because I've experienced this with you, that it's a one-sided conversation. It's me kind of sharing everything and, and yeah. you asking questions. So in a true one-to-one -one relationship, if I was not your client, there's a there's a part of you that would come out theoretically in me reciprocating the same questions back to you. So I guess what I meant by that is, do you feel like as a business coach, when you're working with clients, that a part of you has to be sort of set aside temporarily so that you can just be that reflection? Yeah. Because if you weren't setting that aside, then your intrinsic qualities of who you are, whether they're ego-based or not, would, would shine through. I guess is where I'm getting at with that. That's, that just seems to stand reasonable for me. Yeah, it doesn't... I guess the, the trouble I'm having is it doesn't feel like anything's being set aside. It just feels like the focus is on you, right? It's like if I'm eating cake... <clears throat> excuse me. If I'm eating cake, I'm not setting aside my love of pasta. I'm just being with cake. Hmm. So it feels Fair like enough. That. Yeah. So when do you have, are there some sort of bedrock things about Nick Egan and the style of coaching that you do that one gets from you? If, if someone had, if you could step outside yourself for a minute and yeah. watch you as a business coach and the journey you've taken from where you started to where you are now and the number of lives that you've interacted with and affected in a positive capacity, what would that look like? What would you say about yourself? What, what, it, what is that composite of Nick Egan that you have made a difference on the planet to the people you've worked with? I would say that as a coach in coaching capacity, yeah. I rely most heavily on my true capacity to see the best in you and to see, not necessarily to see it for like, I can't say like, Hey, it's this, this, and this, but to stay with you until it like reveals itself. And I would say all coaches and hopefully can have some element of that, but it's less about me coming through with like an agenda and teaching you how to do these things and more about me being with you in a way that's going to accelerate whatever it is that you want to achieve. And I don't have a set, I don't have a set outcome for that. 
Have you ever encountered clients that you had to that you had to fire because you couldn't work with them because for one reason or another they were too obstinate or they just weren't philosophically in alignment with you? Yeah, may, a couple. Uh-huh. A couple. And what What are some of those reasons? Um, well, who, who wouldn't reason, you Who wouldn't you work with? The biggest reason sometimes I will have leaders in particular. So, like, see, I've worked with a couple of. Um, really C-level leaders, pretty, pretty like they'd be considered medium-sized businesses. So like $20 million business, $50 million business. So not huge, not Fortune 500, but not small either. And those, the couple of experiences that are coming to mind, they really just wanted somebody to teach them leadership theory. They didn't really want to work on themselves. They wanted to like a download of theory. And then they wanted to try to apply that. And we kind of did it. I mean, I know I my background isn't such that I can do that. It's just not that interesting to me. Like I'm less interested in giving you a leadership theory and seeing how, like grading you based on how good you apply it or not. And I'm much more in, I'm interested in you uncovering some authentic thing about yourself. So those so, those clients I don't work well with. So who is your ideal type of client? My ideal type of client is... They're and really, across what industries? Yeah, the industry piece isn't so important. Like I've worked with clients in everything from mining to web three, a lot of tech, like a lot of tech um, industries, a lot of crypto web three type stuff um, on the leadership side. So those tend to be like VP, usually VP and above. So EVP, you know, C-suite, all of that. And those clients are more interested in like, how do, how do you become a more impactful leader? And then on the other side, I work with smaller businesses. And so they're much more interested in usually a small business is dealing only with growth, right? So they're either wanting time or money. So they want more money. They want to double their revenue and increase their time. It tends to be like the outcome. And as you know, small businesses, especially small business owners, they're always the, the biggest bottleneck, always, right? And the ones that know that, the ones that come to me saying like, I know that I'm the biz- biggest bottleneck, I just don't know what to do. They're the ones that I really, really enjoy working with because it's the most um it's the most transformational right yeah yeah the biggest shifts yeah exactly so in a sense of if if there were a group of your past clients in the room with me right now what were what would some of the things that people would say about their experiences with you ah that's a good question i sometimes i keep a running file even though i don't use it that much of people's responses um you read it at night before you go to bed. <laughs> no, I make your, my, these, I make my wife your, read it out loud to me. <laughs> these are your, these are my affirmations. <laughs> yeah, so, um, no, it's, I, I oftentimes will hear things like, I never knew that I could have done that. Like I never knew how far I could come or I never, I always knew that we would do something, but I didn't realize like how, how far and how fast we could go. Thank you for believing in me, like that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So you're married, you have a couple of kids, you have three kids, three girls. Yeah. Do you find that the way you are as a parent is very similar to how you are as a coach? In some ways. Yeah. I mean, as a parent, especially like a dad to girl, I try to, I try to drive the agenda a little bit more with like fun and playfulness as much as I can. Right. And then I also try to hold boundaries too, in a light way, in a positive way. So yeah, but your coaching sessions are fun and playful to some extent as well. There's there's yeah. never a sense of is the is there's never a sense of like undue dread that I've got to sit down and do work. It's sort of like they're conversational, very pointed conversational yeah. questions and, and answers and accountability around it, but it's always still feels very light. 
Yeah, that is. And maybe that's another hallmark too, is like I have a kind of casualness, even when, when I'm teaching meditation, when I'm traveling, when I'm doing, leading people on trips, there's a kind of like, I just truly believe if you can stay with somebody, you don't need to make it serious. You don't need to set up things like, oh, a serious, whatever. In fact, this is a good, I haven't really ever elucidated this, but that, that level of seriousness is almost a kind of um, obstacle to spirituality among many Westerners. Like many Westerners that I've seen come on my trips, especially I'm thinking of that in particular, they like take themselves super seriously. And it's like they get into this rigidity of it. And that's fine. Like if you need that, but it's like this rigid, like, how should I stand? How should I do whatever? And how should I, um, how should I behave? And, oh, I don't want to drink this, you know, I don't want to do that or don't want to do whatever. And, and they don't realize that like at a deeper level, they haven't spent enough time around real spiritual practitioners, like real spiritual practitioners. You can feel it. And I, I've known many, many Westerners, many people coming from Asia. They feel very different. They feel very casual. They feel like, yeah, OK, they're not going to be they're not going to be pissed if they're a vegetarian and there's some meat lard in their food or whatever. Right. And they're not going to hold it against you if you have a beer in front of them. If they don't drink. Right. Very often they will drink. It's like they it's so that rigidity is the thing that I run counter to. And that's the same thing with coaching. So I, I really I'm sort of like. I'm the biggest enemy of rigidity. A, people rig do, yeah, people do take themselves very seriously in, mm -hmm. in, in all walks of life. It's amazing to me. And then one of the things I've noticed the most, and I, I travel a lot, and I, but I hadn't up until the last five years or so. And that's one of the things I noticed most about Americans versus non-Americans is the sense of playfulness mm -hmm. in non-Americans. In every part of the country world I've been, there's a sense of and it's not i'm not saying because i'm on vacation because when i vacation i don't go to resorts i'm not a typical tourist like i go into the heart of the communities yeah and and one of the things that i've noticed in every country i've been to outside of america there's a sense of playfulness that that exists that doesn't exist here where people just don't take themselves as seriously what is that about american culture that's so different than other worlds or other other countries cultures yeah i don't know it's a good it's a good question I mean, it's you see hard. it in, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, yeah. but you see it in just the way people interact with each other. For example, like Americans are always making fun of non-Americans for how they talk really closely to each other. But mm. if you watch a group of non-Americans in their home country engaging, like in Mexico or even in Italy or all over the world, I've any place I've been, the men, for example, they're very close to each other. They're touching each other all the time. They're hugging. They're kissing each other on the cheek. And like there's laugh, laughter going on and playfulness going on. Where, whereas here in America, everyone's really standoffish for the most yeah. part. And I've never really quite understood why those cultures can groom those different unique personalities. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's something to be said for just like history and geography too. I once read an interesting study talking about people that live in the the country tend to have more, even though they can be more playful and relaxed, they tend to hold body space farther away. Whereas somebody that grew up in New York, they have less body space, even to the point of like the way they drive. So I don't know hmm. if you know, like people from New York, like, ah, get off my ass. But I, they don't think that they're on your ass. That's just they're used to how they're driving. Um, so there's maybe Because of the proximity of everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. But I, I don't know. I don't know what it is about Americans in particular. I do know that around spirituality there's a kind of like fear-based rigidity or like a pride, an ego type of pride. This is like the most common, like, oh, I'm a, I have been a vegetarian for 20 years and anybody that's not is bad or, and they don't say that last part, but they kind of imply it or, oh, I've been a serious meditator for this amount of time. It's like, okay, yeah, cool.
what does that even mean? Like, what does it mean to be a serious meditator? That's why maybe I feel elusive to people when they're like, what are your chops? Right? Like, how, like, are you authorized to teach? Do you like, what do you experience? What can you do? How often do you meditate? Right? I get that a, a lot. It seems as if what you were just saying there, and I agree with that. It's, it's almost as if we have a sense of virtue signaling around our powers. Yeah. And if you're not, it's always sort of that us against them mentality. Totally. If you're not doing what I'm doing the way I'm doing it, then you're my enemy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's it's actually a sneaky, sneaky ego thing, right? That's like a very Americana yeah. philosophy, though. It's, we've always been that way. It's always like America is the greatest, and we yeah. patriots and all. And I'm not saying America. I'm not. I'm not denigrating America, but we do have that sort of sense of it's us against you mentality all the time. And I, I right. and when you go to other countries, they don't feel that way. There is yeah. there there is no sort of like patriotism that exists within other countries, right? I think there can be a pride. There is a pride. I mean, if you go check out like if you go to Mexico and check out a soccer match, right? They're going to be very, <laughs> they're going to be bummed if Mexico loses in the World Cup, right? I there's didn't say pride. I said pride. patriotism. That sort of sense of like my country is better than your country. That global patriotism. Yeah. Patriotism. Yeah. No, that's it's interesting. I mean, identifying with various labels is just it's all just kind of an ego trap right doesn't mean we get rid of label it doesn't mean like i shall never identify with any ego label at all but at the same time it's like well the more rigidly you hold onto those things the harder it becomes so in the last part of our call you wrote this book and i'm sorry i'm shifting gears just because we never have enough time to finish anything shift the art of transforming limitations i've read this several times it's a great book um the is there a, a follow-up to this do you have more books planned not yet. I have a couple of ideas. I don't know. Maybe you and I can talk about that offline. That'd be a good topic of discussion. I sort of have this idea. Like here, we, this goes along with what we were talking about. Um, that sort of rigidity around quote unquote spiritual concepts. Um, energy is one that I think it really drives me nuts. Like people really get overly serious and overly invested in understanding what energy like chakra i'm talking chakras like internal energy but going all the way to like feng shui right it's all just forms of energy healing all that and so i was thinking of writing maybe something that's like a universal introduction and explanation of various capacities of this this quote-unquote thing called energy whether you call it chi or prana or in tibetan we call it lung like there's other just energy like that kind of internal energy and how it might manifest and then what to how to change it how to influence it and then some elements of spirituality and well-being with it i think it could be an interesting topic but from a very down-to-earth perspective you should write a children's book mm. yeah i don't know i'm not that good of a writer i read a lot of children's books and they're some of them are really clever there's a passage in your book you can't remove the difficulties or the annoyance from the outside world but you can focus on your internal experience and your story of them mm -hmm. So um, I've, I've, I read that pretty regularly in the book. And I think um, my interpretation of that is, is you, you always have a choice in how you respond to everything, right? Yeah. That's exactly have you right. ever had a situation in, in your life um, at any point where you responded outside of character and it, it did damage to something? I think... Or have you always been this Zen master in no, control of everything? No, I mean, you can ask anybody. I, that's not... 
what would your wife say to this? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. She would say, like, that's a daily occurrence. I don't know if it calls Bring her in here. I got to ask her a couple of yeah. questions. <laughs> and we're not in the same room. If you're watching video, we actually have the exact same bookshelf. I just we do. I'm that certain out. that I had mine first. Uh, I'll tell you for sure. Um, did you yeah. have it the first time I spoke to you? I think I did. I think I was, You did? Yeah. I think so. No, yeah. you were in a different room. I was a catalyst for that. We'll see. We can go back to the tape. Hmm, but anyway. Yeah, all the time. I mean, that's a that's a continual practice, right? All the time. And that's sort of the way the world works is that it gives you greater and greater annoyances or greater things that will kind of push your buttons. It's it's all it, one of the things I've noticed in my life and I'd never had this awareness before. And I, and I would say and, and I'm not going to use the word awoke because it's overused and it means nothing anymore. But in my last Eight years of my life, I've gone through some sort of a transformation in my perspective and my perception of the world and myself. And one of the things that I've noticed in, in every scenario is that there is no continuous stream of anything. It's just a constant ebb and flow, good and bad, ugly, beautiful. And in every single one of those moments, if, we're, if we can be self-aware enough of the moment in and of itself, there's a lesson to be learned from that. Absolutely. In, in every situation, like literally every situation, whether it's with your children, I'm a father, I, you know, I have one of my daughters who is, is, does everything I say, no matter what, no questions asked. And I have another daughter who pushes me against on every topic, no matter what it is, she pushes me. Mm -hmm. And I used to get really frustrated. I still do get frustrated, but it dawned on me um, that the reason I'm having so much angst and pushback from her is that there is a similar similarities in our personalities yeah. and she's, she is being the reflection of how I'm engaging with her. Right. Which is, which has been a powerful lesson for me is trying to put my emotions aside and how I respond to her and, and whatnot. And would you say, and this is a sort of really deep esoteric question, but in, in life of itself, what what is the meaning of of why we're here? What what are we? What is it we're supposed to accomplish while we're here? Is it yeah. just this continually these lessons that we're supposed to learn? Is it just becoming a better version of ourselves every day? Is it finally waking up and realizing that we are not the center of the universe and that everyone is connected? Like I I struggle with this on a daily basis. What why are we here? What's the point of life? Yeah. I mean, there's, a, there's so many ways to answer that. One, I would say you have to sort of go a little bit deeper in the into the question to really get a juicy answer. And yeah, sure, of course, one, you know, everything can be considered like a guru, like a teacher, right? If you have that mentality, if you have that perspective that you're going to learn from everything and everything is kind of a blessing, that's everything that happens to you is a blessing and is for your betterment, right? That's a really good way to, to go about the world. And if you think about like, what are we supposed to accomplish? Accomplishment means that you already don't have a thing. Accomplishment means I'm, I don't, I don't yet have that thing, whatever it is. And I would suggest that the real spiritual traditions, every single one of them in different ways is actually saying you already are that thing and that you've just either forgotten or you need to wake up to it or something like that. And whatever that thing is, whatever you think that accomplishment is, you have that already. And so you have to, and the only way to, the best way to do that is to look inward and to realize what you truly are already. Hmm. I've heard that philosophy before that we, we've already experienced this life in a variety of different modalities, whether it's in a different time and space, and we're just repeating this over and over. Um, 
but I've heard that before, and I'm I'm not sure if I believe it or not or buy into it. But I I, I do understand that things things. Do, let me rephrase this: Do things happen for a reason? That's a well. Let me just say that's a different that's a different thing. So I'm not saying that we've experienced it before, kind of that like infinite timelines and all of that. I'm saying that the thing that you are thinking of accomplishing, whatever that is, like in Buddhism, we would use the term enlightenment, right? You would use the term fully enlightened, blissful, infinite, all of that. You already are that. We just don't realize it. And that's a different thing. It's like saying, it's like searching around for gold everywhere, but actually realizing that you are the gold, you are made out of pure gold. So that's a, it's slightly different than those two things. And then what was your, how did you phrase the last question? Do things happen for a reason? When people say that it's the reason is, so if you take a karmic perspective, meaning like things are propelled, there's no, there's no thing that will happen without a cause, right? We know that scientifically, that's just, th there is no action that will happen without a previous action. So something had to happen before that. So if you take that perspective, then it's karmic, right? And it's being pushed away. What, what I think people mean when they say that is like, is there a bigger design? Is there a lesson? And I would say that maybe, but it's a reflection of your own internal kind of psychological mechanism. And so it's more of like, it's more like walking through a, maybe like a deep ravine and then hearing all these things happen, but not realizing that it's just echoes of your own voice. Hmm. You're a breath of fresh air. How can people find you? Likewise. Um, easiest way you can go to nickeganphd.com. You can go find me on LinkedIn. I'm always there. Um, coaching. would love to coach the right kind of people, anybody that's entrepreneur or leader. Um, if you want a copy of my book, I don't know, send me an email. <laughs> I can send it. Go to nickeganphd at gmail.com or, or check out my website. What's next in store for you? What do you got? What's your big plans? Oh, right now we're working on... I'm working on a leadership development company. Um, there's a lot of need, at least here, I live in Austin and out here. So we're going to stay local for a while. Um, so that's a big plan. And then, I don't know, we'll see, I think diving into certain practices a little more seriously, maybe doing some meditation retreats. I'd like to get involved with the meditation space format with you. I really need uh, some direction on that. Yeah, let's do it. No, I'm like not just saying that. I, I actually really need some direction. I realize how fundamental it is and I'm just not able to embrace it the way I want to. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it's it feels like effortful until it's not, right? And I had my, I'll tell you this, my Zen teacher, my very first, I'd consider him like enlightened teacher um, when I was 16, he would say, you have to be steamrolled. <laughs> and so we would do like these four hour meditation sessions and you'll learn more in one four-hour meditation session than you will in two, five, six months of meditating for like 10 minutes a day. Hmm. So if you really want to get into meditation and from a spiritual perspective, not just the like, I'm going to calm my mind down, that's fine too. I'm going to calm my mind down as one version. You only need 10 minutes a day. If you really want to go deep, let's get steamrolled. And then from there, you can kind of let go of the four-hour sessions or whatever. Do you think that guided meditations are good or bad? I mean, they're, they're fine. Yeah, they're yeah. fine. Ultimately, like, what are you trying to do? There's many meditations are actually just around like psychological healing, which is fine, but it doesn't actually pierce the veil of our own perceptions. I have no idea what I'm trying to accomplish, to be honest with you. Right. So that's exactly. So that's what happens like outside of a teacher, outside of a tradition. It's kind of like, well, what, what am I trying to do? I, I'm, I'm just sort of touching the surface on it, I think, because I'm told meditation is good for me. 
Right. But I don't have an objective when I try to meditate. Yeah. So yeah. I should have an objective? Well, it would be... So if you're trying to go for like psychological, let's say you're trying to go for like reprogramming for success, something like that, right? It doesn't make sense to do a kind of meditation that's just completely resting in the nature of mind and vice versa. Let's say you want to, let's say you have some kind of diagnosis and you're trying to do meditations for healing. It doesn't make sense to necessarily go after the psychological visualizations of your own success, right? There may be some overlap, but like what you're trying to, what the near term accomplishment is, is going to then reflect on the path that you're taking. And the only way to do that is to get clarity either through a tradition, through yourself or through a teacher. Hmm. We've touched on a lot of different topics today. There's a lot of different pieces that um, I think we could extrapolate on and for further conversations, but at the, at the nuts and bolts level, the things that you are bringing to the planet and the things that you're doing, how would you encapsulate who you are and what you are? I really like that I'm a kind of a anti-rigidity fundamentalist. I truly believe that like you rigidity of thinking of perspective is like one of the biggest enemies to mankind right now. And so just kind of loosening that up, loosening up rigidity, letting go of patterns, understanding patterns, being able to shift them is what I do every day. Um, and it's what I get the most joy from. That's great. It's been a good conversation, man. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Anytime, man. So if you enjoyed the show, um, you can listen to it live right now if you want to go back and play it. It's on YouTube. It's on LinkedIn, which is your sandbox of choice, right? And yep. it's also on Facebook. But then we'll produce this and put it out at a later date as well. Um, but really enjoyed talking to you every time. And I appreciate you coming on the show today, man. Always a great conversation. Really love the, love the podcast. Yeah, man. Thanks. I'll see you soon. All right. Take care.